Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Memoir writing is inherently risky. It is, you know, it is heart work and it is hard work. Um, And it requires radical compassion and it requires, uh, you know, like a real commitment to interrogating memories and excavating memories. And so, you know, when you add the, the racial element to it, you know, it can go, it can get very complicated and very messy. But what I knew for sure. Um, and again, this comes with age, this comes with being the, the, the black mother of a black son that, you know, I knew that my experience was the truth because I was the only one having it, <laughs> you know? 
I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. If you live in New York, you might know Rebecca Carroll's voice from the radio. She's the host of Come Through with Rebecca Carroll with WNYC, where she was also a cultural critic and a producer. She's written a number of books about race in America, including the award-winning Sugar in the Raw, Voices of Young Black Girls in America. But we got together to speak about her memoir, which came out this year, called Surviving the White Gaze. It tells the story of how Rebecca grew up as a Black adoptee into a white family in a rural New Hampshire town. For years of her childhood, she writes, she'd never seen another Black person, except on television or in the movies. Her memoir tells the story of her relationship with her own racial identity, learning what it meant for her to be Black in her white family, in her community, in this country, and the decisions she faced about how she wanted to inhabit her own skin. It also crucially tells the story of her relationship with her birth mother, a white woman Rebecca finally met when she was 11, whose love and approval Rebecca craved, but whose behavior and ideas were often hurtful and laced with racism. Rebecca came on the show to talk about the conversation with her son that prompted her to write the book, her family's reactions to the memoir, and much more. I always go back to the story that I've told before, which is the summer of 2014 when uh, Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. And my son, who was then, let me do the math backwards, nine, um, asked if he was going to get shot because he's black. And then he asked if I was going to get shot because um, I'm black. And it was such a, it it was both a turning point and a threshold. It's like all of this, I mean, this this rage and this ferocity and this sense of protectiveness, it just bowled me over. It all happened at once. And I felt so angry that this had happened, but also that I had spent so much of my youth sort of, you know, struggling with and um, feeling gaslit and trying to define blackness for myself while my parents, my white adoptive parents and my white adoptive siblings sort of blithely went about their lives. You know, obviously that's an overstatement. Everybody has their issues and and concerns and traumas and difficulties. But regarding race, in that moment where my child was so astute um, and I became a black mother of a black son a black woman in America, it it just all sort of coalesced at the same time. So that definitely felt like a threshold. You know, it was deeply revelatory. And it was also, I mean, primarily because I knew that I couldn't go back to not feeling that way. Um, And that was going to change the tenor and the dynamic between my white adoptive family 
not so much, you know, with my son or even my white husband, because we had all been sort of, you know, we had created our dynamic very much uh, raising our son as a black child, but, but it was a, a revelatory moment in that I knew I couldn't go back. Right. You, I couldn't um, stop evolving. Like I couldn't put it, put a pin in it. Uh, and it, and it just sort of suddenly all of this, um, all of this reaction and excavation and, um, and, you know, it all came out through writing and, and I was a, I was a columnist at the guardian at the time. And I just started, you know, writing these pieces one after the other that sort of touched on an experience that was, um, you know, that my son had really evoked and our, you know, our dynamic and our togetherness and our reflection of each other and our closeness. Um, and so, yeah, I immediately went to writing and to work through it and to keep the narrative growing, um, which is to say, I knew I, I was going to keep evolving, but I also knew that I had to keep sort of um, interrogating what that evolution meant. Yeah. If you don't mind, I want to, I want to press a little further on that word evolution, which feels so, um, lush. What was the specific evolution that you felt like you were being called to in that moment? Could you say a little more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that we're, we all, and I mean, we as human beings, you know, we, we're here and we grow, right? That is the nature of of the human arc. We're born, we grow, we die. But then there is something else that happens if we are willing and open to it. And that is that we evolve, that our ideas grow and change and push and broaden, that our, uh, that our sense of self, uh, our sense of, of beauty, of integrity um, gets bigger and more encompassing. And so for me, that meant, you know, leaving sort of intellectually, physically, psychologically, this very, this smaller space where I was raised and where my, my adoptive white family still lives. Right. And so mm-hmm. I evolved out of that sort of bubble, but they did not. They continue to grow in that bubble but there is no real sense of evolution. The thing maybe that I'm driving at is that you had been doing that for Mm -hmm. many, many years before 2014, before that conversation with your son. And I guess my, I'm wondering when you felt like, okay, I have to keep evolving. Okay. I have to, there's an evolution that's now required of me after this conversation. What was the, was there something different about what you felt like was in front of you then? Oh, my child. Oh, for sure. My son. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there are many moments, um, some that are in the book and some that are not. I mean, particularly that moment where he sees a picture of him, of me on the wall and mm-hmm. thinks it's him. Um, you know, the, the, it, it, it's like a visceral reaction to have been, um, you know, to have been adopted, to have not, to have experienced that primal severance, to not even you know, it's part of my DNA, that feeling of, of severance. And so to have, to have my son, not just reflect for us to reflect each other physically, uh, but for him to somehow speak directly to the experience 
at nine years old of what was going on in the climate, in the in the socio-political racial climate. Uh, when 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 I was nine years old, you know, all that I saw around me was whiteness. All that I saw around me, and it, and in, and you know, in in retrospect, and in that moment that he that he made that point, I was it was so I felt so sad for young me and angry for young me, and also like it was like being you know in in a funhouse almost. You know, my my reflection and my memory of that of my of me at nine years old suddenly felt like I was like being in a funhouse, and there was this this clarity of my of my child of my flesh and blood that. Absolutely changed everything. That phrase "funhouse mirror" is so awesome. I'm so glad that you just said yeah. it because it feels like such a, um, such a it it like names something about the achievement of this book that feels so immense. Which is that you are. I really felt when when I was reading it the the funhouse mirror effect of mm-hmm. trying to look backward and capture um with the benefit of future of of your current experience and your current wisdom the the experiences of a younger you who was in in many ways deprived of the information that you have now and that you were seeking then mm-hmm. um and i'm wondering how you how do i want to put this i'm wondering how you um navigated that sort of toggling back and forth between what you know now, how you think of who you were as a young girl and a young woman, how you were trying to sort of re-access um, that state of mind from your current state of mind now. I ask because this is something that my students are like often ask me about and want to talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard thing to do. And it's so, so beautifully done in this book. Thank you. I I think that this goes back to the idea of evolution, um, and that is, and 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 also, you know, you brought up the the point of you know not really having any resources to, or, or the language that I have now. But I I did have my instinct, right? Which is, you know, what I didn't what I did not have is an instinct paired with the language to contextualize what I was experiencing. And so I have that now. And as I, in, in the process of writing this book, you know, I was thinking about being younger and, and some of the things that I, that I did, um, you know, like, um, like using babysitting money to buy a birthday present for a boy that I liked because that was, you know, that was, that was a strategy, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I, I mean, I think, I think one of the things at the time I was feeling, um, you know, like, this is so dumb. This is, he's not going to like it. He's, you know, he doesn't like me, but in, in retrospect, I was like, that was some really smart strategy, right? Like to, and to, and, and to figure out a way to appeal or be in um, be relevant to these popular kids, particularly boys. Um, and at, you know, at the time it would, you could have called it cunning. You could have called it manipulative. You could have called it, you know, um, social cl- You could call it a lot of things, but to me, to my, my current, you know, mind at this, at this age and with wisdom is that that was strategy and it was instinct. And it, and I was very much in survival mode. 
Um, and so I, a lot of the time, and I think, you know, in, in terms of your students reflecting on experiences, you know, there is, of course, the idea of giving yourself grace. But there's also, you know, the idea of noticing, recognizing that you do what you have to do in a situation or you don't go, you don't move, you don't, you stand still, you stay, you are stunted. And I just wasn't going to do that. Yeah. It's funny when you were just saying like you, some people could call that manipulation or cunning. I was thinking, no, it just sounds like, it sounded like survival skills. It sounded like the work of survival. um, Even if you wouldn't, even if sort of the younger, the younger Rebecca wouldn't have used those words to describe it, maybe. Um, I'm curious how you amassed the sort of the store of memories that became mm. this book because it um it spans such a huge sort of length of time and it uh and it also like does the very elegant work of wrestling with some things that feel fuzzily remembered or mm-hmm. that are remembered you know in your 20s or in your 30 you know that that weren't always remembered but are now remembered um how did you how did you find that material? Had you kept things in diaries? Were you sort of writing fresh? Devout journal writer from the time that I was Ah. probably 10 years old. So I had, you know, hundreds of journals to reflect on. Um, I also had lots and lots of letters. You know, my birth mother and I wrote letters back and forth constantly. My dad and I wrote letters to each other. My mom and I wrote letters Um, but, but it was journal writing, um, letters. And then I've always had a very particularly vivid sense of memory. Like I have these insane dreams and always have that are really vivid. And and I remember, you know, for, for years, you know, particular certain dreams. Um, but I, I'm really glad you asked about like, you know, grappling with the sort of fuzzy of things that even if I had written it in my journal, it's like, did that, is that so and so forth? You know, you have to, again, you have to sort of decide, you know, memoir writing is inherently risky. It is, you know, it is heart work and it is hard work. Um, And it requires radical compassion and it requires, uh, you know, like a real commitment to interrogating memories and excavating memories. And so, you know, and when you add the the racial element to it, you know, it can go, it can get very complicated and very messy. But what I knew for sure, um, and again, this comes with age, this comes with being the, the, the black mother of a black son, that, you know, I knew that my experience was the truth because I was the only one having it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, there are, are a few things that since the book came out and, you know, my, my family has not taken it well at all. Um, but they, you know, the, the things that they protest uh, are very in character with the way in which they're written, which is, you know, sort of both interesting and depressing, right? Which is they've all reacted in exact the way, in exactly the way, the way I have written them and portrayed them would act. 
my my dad is is his major concern is not the racism that I experienced, not the inappropriate behavior from a family member, but that I didn't more effectively revere or articulate the uniqueness of their open marriage. <laughs> you know, I mean that it, of, of course, of course, that's what he's concerned about because he has an enormous ego. Did you, did you trouble yourself with worrying about that? How it would, how it would be received by your family as you were writing or during the publication So here, process? this is the, here's the thing. Um, and my therapist smartly said the other day, you know, you, the response to the book from your family is pretty much your next book. Um, because I wrote the book, the memoir, largely for them. I thought this is an offering. This is an offering for you to understand and get a sense of what my experience was growing up a black child in your slash our family in an all white town. Why wouldn't that be interesting to you? Why wouldn't you be able to receive that? Why wouldn't you want to? Um, mm. and, and that has not, that has not been the case. Um, and so in terms of troubling myself about um, how they would respond, listen, I, you know, I spoke at length with my sister about what she felt comfortable with me um, sharing in terms of her own trauma and experience. Um, I asked everybody if I could use their names. I offered for my dad to read um, the manuscript before it went uh, for copy edits and he declined. Um I'd been in conversation with my mom constantly and sent her things that I've written. I mean, if any of the folks in my family had kept track of my career, I mean, most of the stuff that's in the book, not most, but much of which, and certainly the vein has been explored in all of my writing throughout my career. Right. It's not as if this is your, your first uh, experience publishing on this subject. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, I'm interested to hear you say that it felt like the book was written for them as a way of trying to communicate your life experience Mm -hmm. to them, Mm -hmm. people who you were obviously so intimate with, but, but so separated from in, Mm -hmm. in different ways, because, um, it also reads, at least to me, one reader as written very much for, for some version of your younger self or your child self. There's that moment where you're, I think it's, are you interviewing, is it June Jordan? Who says, yes. I just, I just write for the girls who aren't here yet. Yes. Um, yes. It felt like a book like that too, where you were. It was either June Jordan or Entezake Shanghai. It was one of the, that's why I, yeah. that's why I paused. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure which one it was. Um, and it read very much like a book that wasn't written for anyone, but um the the young person that you were or the young person that might that might need the book. So that's really a really important distinction and and I'm so glad that you brought that up. Of, of course it was not it's not there's for someone and then there's for someone, right? So the book ultimately is for my son. The, it is also for young me and any version of young me. Um it is also for Toni Morrison. Uh, but in terms, mm. when I say I wrote it for my white adoptive family, I mi- I mean that it 
I wrote it thinking that this would be an offering of clarity, um, an offering as a family member, uh, an offering of, of, of real vulnerability. Um, and not, you know, for them in the same way that it, this is my legacy and I want my, my son to understand why it's so important that I say and do the things that I say and do. Um, but you're, you're right in that it is, is certainly for a younger version of me. Um, there it's, you know, it's for a, a, a bunch of folks in, in deeply different ways. Did you talk with your son about the book while you were writing it and before it came out? Uh, yes. And also he has read it. What was that like for you to have him read your book? It was exciting. I was thrilled that he wanted to, cause he's not a big reader <laughs> on purpose. I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, and he's not, he, I think he, he's not the kind of kid who's going to be like real critical or really like want to talk a ton about it. And, it, and let's face it. I mean, it's a lot to absorb for anybody, but for certainly 15, I mean, he read it last summer. Um, when did the book come out? this year? Yeah. So he read it, he read it earlier this year. Um, and he did, and he did have one concern about my dad that we talked about. Um, and I was really glad that he felt that he could come to me and say, this is, this is really uncomfortable. And, um, I can understand that, you know, that your dad would be upset about it, but can we have a conversation? And so we did, you know, about boundaries and what that, that sort of, whole issue of, of inappropriate behavior and this and that. So I, I was glad for him to bring that to me. Um, and then he didn't tell me when he finished it. And so like a month or two ago, I was like, he said, I'm looking for something to read. And I said, did you finish my book? And he said, yeah, I finished it a long time ago. And I said, well, what did you think? And the only thing he said was, it was very good. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yep. That feels like a really important reviewer mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to get the thumbs up from. Yep. You don't have to say anything else. I'll take it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. to ask you about how you made decisions around portraying Tess, mm. um, your birth mother, who you portray as someone who you loved and in many ways idolized, but who um, we as the readers start to be able to discern is maybe um, hurtful to you in all manner of ways, starting almost right away and in a sort of increasing, increasing, increasing way. Um, when you sat down to work on this memoir, how did you, did you wrestle with yourself about how you wanted to portray the arc of your relationship with her? No, I didn't wrestle with it. In fact, it's one, it's one of the narrative threads in the book that I'm the most proud of because there's a real clarity there that I didn't have, you know, and as we were talking about earlier, when I was a kid, 
you know, where it was just, why is this happening? Why is she saying this? What does this mean? What, you know, to be able to contextualize it and have clarity around that and to also be able to, um, to portray the way in which I loved her so deeply and how, you know, there was this unbelievable year of, of when we were just incredibly close, which, you know, was also unhealthy in its own way, but it was, you know, it's, I, I look back at it very fondly. Um, I'm, I'm proud to have been able to revisit that relationship and give it the arc of discovery, um, to myself. Right. Um, and you know, and I, and I feel like that was by far the hardest, um, the hardest character. I don't know what you say when you, when you're talking about people in memoirs or what, what, one of the, one of the hardest people to write about. And that relationship was, you know, devastating and toxic and, um, you know, magnificent in, in very kind of life changing ways. I mean, I would never, if you had told me when I was 20 years old that I would ever be at a place where I could see clearly the arc of that relationship and understand the ways in which it affected me at certain points in my life, I would have said no way. It was really like that kind of saturation in my mind and in my heart and in my life. And I've talked with girlfriends, you know, who have been with me for the whole ride. um, And it's been so interesting having them read it and, and sort of also see the, 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 the clarity of that arc and the ways in which I used to emulate her and defend her and um, yeah. And to have been able to extricate fully extricate myself from that um, is, is an accomplishment that I'm, that I'm proud of and to have been able to write about it in a way that I thought, you know, I, I thought was, compassionate as compassionate as I could be. Um, I, I feel, I feel good about that. Hmm. Um, how did you take care of yourself during the writing process? Other people I've talked to who have written extensively about relationships that were tough found revisiting those relationships on the page tough. Um, and I'm curious if that was the case for you and if so, how you, how you dealt with that. I think the first draft was, you know, as with uh, in most situations, was was a struggle, um, and I, you know, I kind of dipped my toe in the water and thought, okay, I know what temperature it is, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's swim for a little bit and then maybe not, you know what I mean? There wasn't, I wasn't like, is that really the temperature of the pool? Let me stick my toe in a little deeper. And I, you know, I was, I was reluctant to really go as deep as I needed to go. I wasn't, it wasn't that I was, that I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for it to require an entirely new skill set. You know, writing a memoir is not like stitching together journal entries, which is, you know, something that I, I had to figure out um, and learn but then when I, when it started to come, when it started to flow, this is so cliche, I know, but it really was like such a joy. It was like such a relief. It, you know, the whole idea of, of 
catharsis was like, this is dope. This is like <laughs> amazing, right? To feel like I was actually using a, a craft, my craft as a writer to tell the story of my life was, it was deeply, um, it was deeply thrilling to me. And I would say in terms of the tough relationships, that was also like, really like, okay, I am excavating this because it doesn't need to live in my body anymore. In fact, it's doing more harm in my body and in my brain. And I would very much say that about my relationship with Tess. Like, I don't think about that relationship anymore. It lives there. That's where it mm. lives in the memoir. Um, and, and I, you know, I think I captured it as well as I could. And I'm glad for it to be out of my, out of my body and out of my mind. When you were saying that it felt like having to develop an entirely different skill set, I think that was the word you used. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, tell me more about that. What did you feel like you had to learn how to do to write this? Write a memoir. <laughs> you, you know, like yeah. all of my all of my previous books are are at least in part interview based, and so I would, you know, and and I worked as an editor for years, and um, I'm very into you know I'm, my, the podcasts I've done are conversational, and I've been sure. a journalist, and so I I know I know how to write essays and shorter pieces, but the idea of an actual, I mean, it is it is essentially a real uh, truthful novel. I mean, you have to make it read like people want to keep reading, right? It, it's not just this happened, this happened, and then this happened and so on and so forth. There's a real, real craft to it. Um, and I had never done that before. Which parts felt especially challenging to you as you were shifting into that mode? Um, just, uh, staying on course and not, um, and not, um, digressing, you know, uh, making sure that everything, everything that was in the book spoke directly to surviving the white gaze. Um, you know, I could have written an entire, you know, five, six, seven chapters about my friendship with, with Leah, um, because that was such a profound relationship to me, but only the parts of my friendship with her that spoke to the white gaze and surviving the white gaze could make it into the book. Um, and so that was, that was really challenging because there were, you know, my relationship with Catherine, my dad's lover, there was a lot around that, that I wanted to include that didn't have anything to do with surviving the white gaze. Right. Right. The, the process of weeding out all these mm -hmm. things that feel deeply important to the story of your life, but maybe mm -hmm. are not relevant to the execution of this particular memoir. Right. And what, if I can ask on the other side, um, aside from the catharsis, what felt like especially joyful about entering this new mode? I think, um, I just think intellectual freedom and clarity um, is so delicious. and. And that I have done this one thing well and right, and that I'm whole enough um, to be an uh, you know a a good mother, a good partner, a good friend, a good person. You know that surviving 
it wasn't just about surviving, it was about becoming. Hmm. Becoming through the act of writing this book? Becoming through the act of writing and also just allowing those experiences to to resonate and then let them go. That's such a beautiful that's such a beautiful thing for a memoir to do. Um, it feels like at, at its very best, that's what memoir can be for the writer and for the yeah. reader too. I hope so. like you know anything about your story, this story that you've told in this book that you didn't know when you were at the beginning of the writing process or even in the middle of it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, hmm. At the beginning of it, I mean, I think it's probably full circle here, which, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that I didn't know that I had so fully evolved out of my childhood, out of my, um, out of my all white surroundings, that there's really no turning back that I, that, that the, that even my parents love for me still exists in that bubble. And that in order for me to receive their love as I know it or knew it, I have to go back into that bubble. And I can't survive in that bubble. It's actually literally um, dangerous for me. And so I didn't realize that, um, that that would be a result and or a revelation. I think we are, we're sort of getting close to time. Is there anything that you think that you want to return to or that you think I should have asked you that I haven't yet asked you? Anything you wanted to speak to that we haven't touched on yet? I mean, in very much on brand for me fashion, um, you know, I am curious to know if, if when you read it, like there was immediately like the first question that came to mind for you Ooh, what a good question the first thing that came to mind for me the first question that came to mind for me I think the first question that I had was the question that I asked you about writing about Tess your birth mother because from the very beginning that um relationship has so much tension in it and so much complexity to it and so much edge on it in terms of the way that she is portrayed both with this um this this regard that feels loving but also highly critical like you I could just immediately feel the um conflict that mm-hmm. was that this character was going to hold um because of her behavior as it's described. And that was my first question, I think, of thinking like, okay, I want to know how she made this. I want to, I want to know how Rebecca made decisions about writing this, writing this woman. 
um, who's a whole, you know, a whole complicated person, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, the portrayal obviously needs to be from your, per, your experience of her. And so, you know, on going back to your, your question about the responses and how I said, you know, everybody has responded very much in the way that I portrayed them. Um, my birth mother ha has emailed my publisher, my publicist, the head of business affairs at the uh, Hollywood production company that optioned my book, um, an editor at a online magazine where I work, um, where I where I published rather, uh, to try to eclipse my story. Eclipse it. Yes, which is that to to use the the opportunity of my story to amplify her own. As in, sorry, I'm just want to mm -hmm. make sure I'm understanding you. She's emailing or contacting everyone to say, "I'm the real story. You should you should option my life, or you should buy my next book." Is that what you mean? In effect. In effect, depending upon who she's who she is reaching out to, um, the the online uh, publication, she said, you know, I that very much that I'm the true story, um, I'm the real story, and uh, to the um, production company, you know, she said I wrote a book, and Rebecca wouldn't allow for for it to go into production, you know, all of all of the all of the things that I <laughs> wrote, <laughs> right, yeah. Huh. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting, even when I think about, you know, the way she dealt, I mean, the way she spoke to me and dealt with race was obviously both problematic and racist. But at the time, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any, any language for it. And I think particularly when she said something to me, like, you know, what, how would you know what it, what it feels like, or what it means to be black? Um, I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, because I mean, her argument, she's saying you're completely socialized in a white environment. Your family is white. How, how would you know? But what she was saying was completely racist. Yeah. There was something that I thought was so, that I really ad admired about the way you wrote scenes like that. And there were lots of them in that you didn't supply your yourself at that age yourself in the scene you didn't supply the scene with language that you have now but didn't have then we were just sort of right in in the moment that you were in at whatever age that was where we're you know we're reading along to in, reading along with these conversations uh thinking whoa or uh-oh or oh my gosh or gosh that's so hurtful or geez that's really racist mm -hmm. but it's but but the the person the consciousness of the, the narrator at that time is like nine and doesn't mm -hmm, have those. Mm -hmm. And that, that uh, discrepancy and that tension um, also just was so interesting and exciting to me and was one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about, about her, about writing that relationship. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's interesting. Um, I'm happy to, to think about it um, and talk with really smart people about it um, because now it is sort of 
just interesting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> particularly given, given, you know, what I do in my, in other projects and other writing and, and, and in this climate, you know, of racial reconciliation or whatever we, whatever have you, but that I'm able to sort of look at that sort of foundational relationship, um, as an example of both what not to do, but also what to look for, right? And how to parent my own son and mentor folks. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. Another, another through line that felt so powerful in the book is kind of the flip side of the relationship with Tess, which is all of the, um, all of the relationships with black people and especially black women that kind mm -hmm. of event and, you know, in real life and in their writing, right. Like Toni mm -hmm. Morrison mm -hmm. or June Jordan, um, that begin to supply you with the language mm -hmm. that you need and supply you with the, the frameworks and the language and the understanding and the wisdom and the, you know, all of, all of that, that eventually allows you to, that brings you from the, I guess, 11 year old to the person writing. I mean, and, and that, as I said in the prologue, right, with my former student, I mean, that's what Blackness does. Like, Blackness finds us, and we find each other, and there is this breadth of love and ancestral um, wisdom, and it's there to be embraced and shows up at the right time. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.